This is Sober Company, a podcast about modern sobriety. My name is Lacey, and I welcome you to this week's episode. So Nick, Nick is still on hiatus this week, and he's been focusing on his mental health. So this week, I was very lucky to have a chance to speak to Brian Lady and Nick Robidoux. They're a creative couple whose relationship began with an experience of active addiction, of which they are now on the other side of, together on their own unique paths of growth. This conversation came about because I know Brian, who is a performer and creative multi-hyphenate from Recovery Dharma. He told Nick and I about a play his boyfriend, the playwright Nick Robidoux, wrote about the emotional experience of being in a relationship with Brian while he was in active addiction. There was so much depth and richness to this conversation. We spoke about the progression of their relationship from Brian's use and Nick's response to it, what those conversations were like, the stories they were telling themselves about each other, what was going on in their heads versus how they were acting, to them eventually both seeking help, Nick in, fr- in the form of Al-Anon and Brian at meetings and intensive outpatient. We also talked about the creative side of the story, about Nick's process of writing this play called Against the Flesh and writing something so personal and current that would be performed on stage by other people in front of an audience and Brian's response to having something written about him about one of the most difficult times of his life. You know, I don't think we get a lot of opportunities to hear so much honesty and thoughtful discussion from two people in a relationship about their experience with addiction. And it really speaks to a lot of, a lot to the work they've done and, and continue to do. I think this conversation really has the potential to resonate with a lot of you. And I'm really grateful to Brian and Nick for coming on and being so thoughtful and sharing so much of themselves. I hope you enjoy. Um, All right, we can start. Brian, Nick, thank you for being here with us today. Thank you for having us. (laughs) Yeah, thank you. Just so that people kind of understand the setup, it's fine. Brian and Nick live together, and right now they're in separate, what looks to me like separate bedrooms, talking to me on the phone. We're all looking at each other through Zoom, so it's a fun, yeah. it's like <laughs> a fun experiment, right? We're, we're feeling our way through it. Yeah, exactly. So why don't you say hello, each of you, just so that people can kind of, I always find this in podcasts, like if there's more than one, you know, just so I, we know your voices. So I don't know. Brian, why don't we start with you since you're alphabetical? Say hello to everybody. No, hello. Wait, what is the, that doesn't matter. It's like when people are like, hello world or whatever. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Uh, uh, hi, I'm, I'm Brian. That's hello world. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Nick. Do, do you know what I'm talking about? Like people like on the radio are like, hello out there or something. I don't know. Hello. Maybe I'm just making up. Yeah. Thing. Hello. I know what you mean. Like it's usually like two in the morning or something. Right. Yeah. 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 I feel like Christian Slater in um, Pump Up the Volume. Cool. Which is a very old reference. If I don't think Nick's ever seen the film. <laughs> oh, well, Nick, have you seen Pump Up the Volume? <laughs> uh, hi, I'm Nick. And um, I don't believe I have ever seen the, the film Pump Up the Volume. If so, I don't remember a thing about it. One for all of us to rewatch, clearly. Now, how long, when did you meet each other? How did you meet each other? When did that happen? 
we actually have our anniversary. Our anniversary of first meeting is what in a week or two, 2006. It was, I think, it was the the Sunday before the Sunday before Labor Day, I believe, of 2006. Okay. And how did you meet? At a bar. <laughs> <laughs> That's cute. Yes, we met at a bar, and aside, the reason why we started talking to each other was Nick was seated at the bar and I came up to the bar and I said to someone, I don't know who, someone looked very young, even though they weren't young. And I referenced looked like they slept in Tupperware and Nick perked up because it's a reference to a very short lived uh, like young adult series called in Erie, Indiana, Erie, Indiana. Okay. And no one had ever gotten a reference before. And Nick looked up and he was like, Erie, Indiana. And I was like, yeah, hello, sir. <laughs> <laughs> that's wonderful. That's like a, that's a yeah. truly wonderful way to meet. Yeah. Erie, Indiana. That was like X-Files for the young adult set basically. Okay. All right. So the reason that you're both here is because, well, I know Brian from Recovery Dharma. Uh, Brian succeeded me as a chair of the New York City Recovery Dharma community in Ursanga. That is of which we've, the the blood we share. Yes. Okay. (laughs) Yep, I'm in the middle of that. Yeah, yeah, and he's been a very supportive listener to Sober Company and always has amazing insights and always makes me feel smarter than I am. And then (laughs) Nick wrote this amazing play about his kind of emotional experience with Brian's acts of addiction. And Brian told me about it, and I was like, that actually you were like, that would be an amazing conversation for the podcast. And I agreed, but I also made Brian come on because that's an even, like, I just think that dynamic of having a couple who's been through experiencing active addiction and is on the other side of that. And I, I like to think of it as like, you're recovering together, even though Nick, you aren't haven't experienced a substance addiction. It's, it's kind of like on the, you're both growing and learning and like active in that. Would you say that's right? Absolutely. I definitely, and it's something that Brian and I have talked about a lot, and I think it's been an important aspect of the last two or three years for both of us. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us, I don't know if I gave an accurate description of your play. I finished it today. It was incredibly oh. compelling. Yeah, I, it's very, I can't wait to see it acted out. Whenever COVID's done, we're, <laughs> we're were, looking forward to doing it. Right. It was set to... Is premiere the right word in March, right? It was April. And what we were going to be doing is it was going to be a a workshop production. Mm -hmm. So we were going to be in the theater with actors off book, lines memorized, but very minimal sets and costumes and lights. Mm -hmm. And it was kind of going to be like a tryout for other theaters to do a more full production of it. Mm -hmm. And the idea was that we were going to do a few performances. We were inviting other New York City theaters to come watch it and hope, with the hopes that one of them would pick it up mm-hmm. to do a full run of. So we were actually, we had actually just started rehearsals when we were shut down. So wow. Wow. Yeah. Someday. <laughs> yeah. The, the play is called Against the Flesh. 
And can you can you describe it in your own words? Is that? Yeah, I mean, I think your description was pretty pretty accurate. I think I think a lot of it for me, the play is it's it's a hard play for me to describe beyond what you said because I think for me, I tried to keep it simple. Mm-hmm. You know, it all takes place over one weekend. Mm-hmm. There's not a lot of big plot twists other than things inside the main character's head. Mm-hmm. Because it's all about feeling for me, and it's all about state of mind and trying to come to a place of healing, I think. And one thing that was that I made the choice to do when I was first working on the play, which, by the way, I didn't make a lot of active, like, decision-making when I wrote the play, because I wrote it. I wrote the first draft over the course of four days on a silent writing retreat at a Zen Buddhist center. Very cool. So there was a lot of there wasn't a lot of planning that went into how I wrote it. It was written very quickly by design, and a lot of it was on instinct. Mm. But I did make the decision there at the very beginning to that it wasn't going to be about what happened between me and Brian in terms of the actual events. It's inspired by, and in some cases, it echoes things that happened. But I, I kind of made the decision that it wasn't going to be a blow-by-blow reliving mm-hmm. of the way that things happened because um, I didn't want that. To, I didn't want it to be about rehashing or relitigating what happened at various stages in our relationship. It, it, for me, it was more about how it felt and how I worked to move on from that and mm-hmm. come to a place of healing. So. I very deliberately wasn't seeking to make it a true story, inspired by a true story, but I, I really wanted to create that separation of it's not memoir. It's not a work mm-hmm. of, it's not a straight work of memoir, which, you know, if you remember reading it, like there are certain things that obviously are not our true story mm-hmm. because the couple is not together anymore mm-hmm. in the, in the play and we are together and, Things like that that I decided to do right off the bat to be like um, separate separate it from the facts of my true story so that it wouldn't feel too caught up in that. And why do you think it was important for you to do that? Create? Do you think it like creatively or your own kind of? Because and I want to get into this next kind of. I think yeah. there's kind of two parts of the story, and that one is that you're both creatives, and you're both in the performance fields. And so that's one part of the story and how your relationship reflects in your creative work. And then there's also the relational part of this, which is kind of more traditional to what we normally talk about on Sober Company, which is what I want to get into also, which is, you know, how like more pragmatic, practical things that people can take away about communication and all of that. But if you could just, you know, just how you kind of creatively, like how, because it, it happens, you wrote this play very kind of quickly. Well, I mean, in terms of life, a few months after one of like an incident that was painful for both of you in yeah. Brian's active addiction. So you, you yeah. were kind of respond, reacting to that, right? Yes. The thing that in terms of that aspect, how the relative short amount of time that has passed, the way that this writing retreat worked is that we were instructed to not have a plan in advance for what we were going to write, to go in totally cold, basically. Mm-hmm. And we were 
we went through like three days of guided writing exercises and memory work and sense memory work. And only after that did we begin writing our plays. And we were very, we were instructed over and over again, don't plan, don't decide what you're going to write, just go. So I didn't know I was going to write this and write about this until I started doing it. Mm. It just like, well, it started in the early parts were in a notebook, but then I, when I started running my computer on my laptop, it's just what happened. Mm-hmm. And it was, I think for me, it was the setting. We were, we were supposed to, we were dialing into our memory. So much of the work was on memory. And I just kept coming back to things that had happened recently. And it's what was on my mind. Mm-hmm. And I think I didn't realize how much it was on my mind and how much I had been carrying it around with me, I think, until like, we were told to tap into our feelings and our senses and our memories, and that's what came out. Um, but I think uh, to, to answer your earlier question, one of the reasons why I decided to change some of the details and to make it a deliberately not memoir was a large part of it initially was to protect both me and Brian. Mm-hmm. Like I, There were certain things that, like, if I were to do this for an audience, if I were to have this done in an off-Broadway theater, which would be the goal. I don't need the exact details of our lives to be out there for audience members at a theater who don't know us. Mm -hmm. Um, So there was a certain level of protection for both of us there. And but as I started to write, I think I did realize that if it had just been a retelling of what exactly happened, I think that... I would have been too close to it and I wouldn't have been able to write a piece of theater. Mm-hmm. It, I think it would have just, it, it would have tipped over into a diary entry. And I don't know that I would have been able to craft character and story mm-hmm. and event if I, if I was too close to me. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think those are the main reasons why I did that. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense to me. So, Brian, I also want to acknowledge that, like, you know, obviously I've been in active addiction. I don't I, I, I'm just kind of setting up in my own understanding of like or, like this conversation we're about to have and that I don't want to, you know, I think we've all done things that we are ashamed of or that didn't feel good, you know, even when we were doing them. And we're very aware of that. And I just don't want to set this conversation of like, well, Brian was a mess and Nick was handling this situation. You know what I mean? And because I don't think that's exactly fair, but I also want to talk about, I think it's important for people to talk about the reality of loving someone deeply, which Nick, you clearly do. You clearly love each other just reading that play was very clear to me how much you love Brian. So I, you know, I just want to kind of acknowledge that, that we're going to talk, you know, not that we're going to get like deep into the quote unquote worst of it, but just that, do you know what I'm trying to say? I'm I'm not being very clear. I don't want you to like come out as like the bad guy basically. And I think that we've done a lot of work to the, the two of us. And I think my relationship to sobriety and recovery is defined in such a way that I try as hard as I can not even to cast the 
person I have been before or mm-hmm. the behaviors I engaged in before as a nefarious evil creature, which is really deeply easy for me to do. I think that it is it's very easy for me to look back and and sort of be very um, angry with and offended by the person I used to be. And I think that the most generous thing I can do is to look at that person and and tell him, I mean, I think it's something that we practice in our community of offering compassion, but I think the thing that I often look back on myself and say, it's like, I have this thing Nick knows that I don't like to accidentally come across come across photographs of myself yeah. from any time prior to like the past year. And I mean, like, even as a child. And if when I'll start to like play certain tapes about what had happened or what has intervened between then and now, I will look at that former self and I say to myself, you were doing the best with the information you had. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's incredibly important uh, to me. And I think that that's been incredibly important to the ways that Nick and I have been able to navigate. I mean, sometimes, I hope that things don't come up or I think one of the interesting uh, mysteries of sobriety after active use is uh, sometimes you find yourself wandering through a minefield trying to figure out who knows what or Mm -hmm. if you remember things accurately the same way other people do. If things played out for you the way they played out in, you know, reality, Mm -hmm. there's a lot. I find that I reconcile a lot with my perception of events versus the facts of events, that's all to sort of say, like, I fully acknowledge that we will talk about and that this is a way of entering a conversation where difficult moments in my life uh, will be sort of held, uh, not held up, but will will potentially be discussed. I think, too, the amount of work that Nick and I do together, mm-hmm. I think that I think that early on, and certainly early on in anyone's recovery, it becomes, it's very much primary. The experience is incredibly primary. It's very much about getting yourself out of the current bad situation you're in and into any other possible situation and hopefully a good one. Right. But the work, the work that goes into a relationship that changes through recovery and through sobriety is you constantly remember that you weren't the only person in the room, or I constantly remember that I wasn't the only person in the room. And I think for a long time, I believed I was. And having somebody against whom, like, I bump up and who is willing to have conversations with me and is willing to express things uh, really keeps keeps in my present mind that that was not a, that was, that starred me and that I was watching that somebody else, uh, you know, and there's many other people and it's kept abstract. I think sometimes when you are not in a relationship that navigates a very tectonic shift, but, you know, but I think that that's the other thing is that as much as all of this is my story and there's a moment of deep heartache and deep embarrassment and regret that comes with my participation in that story. I also know that the story belongs to somebody else. And it's just as much Nick's story as it yeah. is my story. Yeah, yeah. So, in two thousand and six, Ryan, were you like aware that you had this like a, a, a substance dependence? I would say that I was one of those people who like considered it. Yeah. 
Um, I think I certainly was not a person who was very good at, I was very good at either not using or using all of it. Okay. <laughs> I'm definitely one of those people. Okay. I spent a long time up until I had met Nick and then off and on during and then very bad place in the end. What would happen to me is I would catch a hangover and then I would need to relieve that hangover. And then I was never able to be a person who could reach that homeostasis. And Mm -hmm. I'm not confident that that exists, but it was always like this. I would feel physically and mentally so unwell that I would think, oh, well, I'll just get something to equal me out. And then without fail, that was more than I had even put me in the situation in the first place. So I think I was a person in 2006 who would not have said that I would not have considered myself to be an active addiction. But I think looking back, I very much believed I was a person who was headed toward it Mm. and almost thought that that was just the narrative thrust of things. It was inevitable. Like, I think I couldn't have thought to intervene in 2006, but I would have, but I did consider at that point a future intervention was probably likely. Right. That's interesting. And Nick, when did you kind of, did you guys have fun, like, drinking together and was that part of it in Um, the beginning? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, when I first met Brian, I had lived in New York City for two months. Oh, I had wow. just gotten here. Yeah. yeah. And I remember my initial thought was like, oh, wow, this guy drinks a lot more than I do. And he drinks much more frequently than I do. But I remember at the time thinking like, hey, I'm in New York now. Right. We're in our 20s. It's the city. Like, might as, like this is what this is. This is what young life in the city is. That's the lifestyle. So, that's the lifestyle. So I, I changed my own drinking habits, I would say, to match Brian's very willingly. I didn't, yeah. it's not like Brian pressured me. It's just like, oh, this guy likes to party and have fun. So I should loosen up a little bit and party and have fun too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And when, have you gone over this in your mind kind of when you've noticed it was, on a different level than you, like in a bad way? Um, yeah, I've, I've absolutely gone over this in my mind. On a certain level, almost right away. Mm. And I, in my mind, made a lot of excuses and reasoned it away a lot. But I think there was always a little bit of like, something might be wrong here. But I kind of, there was always an explanation or, or rationale in my head, most of which being like, we're young. Um, then I, I, and this is a moment that Brian and I have talked about before. There was a moment probably about three years into our relationship when there had just been a, a succession of alcohol fueled arguments. I was no longer always matching Brian on the drinking anymore just because I was like, I can't do it. Yeah. And so it had led to a lot of conflict. And I remember being in our kitchen not in this apartment, in the previous apartment, and saying, I think, and I remember pausing and thinking how I wanted to phrase this, both for him and for me, that your drinking is a problem. I didn't say you have a drinking problem. I said your drinking is a problem. And I remember 
really going back and forth in my head about which I was going to say. Oh. And that if I said, if I said, like, you have a drinking problem, thinking, like, I can't take that back if I say it. That's both yeah. to myself and to him. Yeah. And at the time, and this would have been like 2009, it almost felt like saying that had worked to a certain extent because it's like the, the drinking did, didn't stop, but it did reduce. Like there was less drinking and less drunkenness for a while after that. And I remember thinking like, oh, wow, I did it. I got him to like chill out a little bit. And did, so me. were you hiding it, Brian? Or did you actually cool it? No, I actually did for a while. Yeah. And I think that that became a frustrating thing later. But there got to a point where I was able to sort of say like, oh, it turns out this is enough. Oh, it turns out... Uh, not I can stop, but I can sort of choose to. I can not go hard. I cannot like do shots. I, like I remember, there was a whole stretch of time where it was like, oh, and I would still catch a hangover, but I wouldn't get into that weird loop of needing to fix it. Right, of being so sick that you needed to like yeah. take the medicine. Yeah. yeah. So you heard it. It landed. It worked. It worked for you in that moment. Would you say? Yeah. I mean, how much work for you know like this is a thing that I guess I can at some point reconcile in my brain I think that I'm not confident it worked in a primary way and not that it necessarily did anything for me but it definitely positioned me to make a change for someone else to protect something that I valued you know and I mean I think that that's true in a lot of recovery narrative is that you do start to protect certain things and you know, I think later in the narrative, right, you start to protect your youth. But, but I think that was a time when I was attempting to protect something that was of value to me and something that I didn't want to risk. And do you think if Nick had said, I think you have a drinking problem, do you think that that would have had like a major, What do you, do you think that would have had major difference in your reaction? I don't know then. I know yeah. that, I, I know that, I I wanted somebody else to take that ownership for a long time. I wanted somebody to to position me as someone with a problem because I wouldn't have to take that ownership. Someone else would do it, and then I could just fill in that space. So I've been defined that's, as someone with a drinking problem. And, and now I can fit into whatever that thing is. But I think one of the generous gifts of what Nick did... And one of the things that became a trap for me was that he refused to take ownership of my behavior and he made it mine. And that has, you know, that took a long time to reconcile for me. That's interesting because I think in Nick's play, there's a lot of that, right? There's a lot of discussion about ownership of responsibility of behavior, right? Did that spark from a conversation? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think for me, it sparked in not so much a conversation with Brian. I think in the fact that I had been going to Al-Anon meetings for a little while at that point, mm-hmm. and it was identifying my own role in the relationship, in in our dynamic. And because I think there is 
relevant to what you were saying earlier, I think I did have a real tendency to want to think of myself as a martyr, to want to think of myself as some sort of a hero who like bailed Brian out a lot or put up with so much. And I think spending time in, in my own recovery program was like, oh, wow, you know, I had a, I had an equal part in all of this. Mm-hmm. And I think the play is about, for me, is about that feeling of responsibility and that feeling of owning my part in it, feeling really scary and feeling really shameful at, at first and trying to come to the other side of that fear and that shame in, in taking responsibility and overcoming that. Yeah, because I think I have conversations with people who have partners who are in active addiction and they kind of come to me as like, well, what do you think I should do? Because you're one of the, you know, you're the same as this, <laughs> you know, the person who's active. And it's, I, I do want to say like, well, there's shit you're doing too. That's maybe Absolutely. like the drinking's yeah. not your fault. It's not something you, but you know, it is a two-way street. There's behavior that, you know, can, you know, my therapist hates the term codependent, but it's like a, just a convenient, it's a convenient term label. Um, there's behavior that helps set up certain dynamics and all of that. Um, oh, for sure. And, yeah. you know, I think for me, so much of the, so much of Al-Anon talks about setting boundaries. Yeah. And, and I think for me, what I realized, and I think what, one of the things that went into to writing the play is I think the setting of the boundaries is, not just for me and not just for, it's not just a healthy thing for the person in the relationship who doesn't have an an addiction. I think it's a healthy thing for the person who has the addiction as well. Yes. Because not setting boundaries is enabling. Yeah. Is, is teaching, teaching the person struggling with addiction that there's no, there's no need to change or grow or do anything different. And I think I think for me, by, by, and I think it's a feeling I was dealing with and something that went into the play, which is by spending so much time not setting boundaries and not saying something when I felt upset or hurt or bothered, I, was, I wasn't doing Brian any favors either. It, it was a form of harm for him as well mm-hmm. from when I didn't say anything. So I guess I'm looking for a segue to the next kind of portion of, you know, where I guess it gets worse and as a lot of these experiences are, you know, where is there something in the particular that maybe if either one of you have a memory that you think would be helpful or a dynamic from... Brian's use and Nick's reaction to, you know, something kind of, if there's something that stands out to you that, you know, has been kind of integral, maybe. May I say something? And this actually yeah. doesn't speak to uh, an event, but I think the last couple of years, and that's funny because I think Nick and I both think of time in terms of apartments. because <laughs> We, have we went through a period of time where we moved a lot. Yeah, and so there's two apartments that are, like, and they were in a quick succession, but, like, those, I think he and I both have identified as, like, the places that it was the most good, and also it was a place I really that we both began our journeys on sobriety and recovery, but the I think the one thing that was a 
essential both in the experience and in looking back at the experience is the sense of how alone each of us were. I know for a fact that all I wanted was for somebody to connect with me. And I also know that I removed myself constantly from being able to be that connection to someone else. Mm. And that is, there's something really instructive about that loop for me in that I really wanted connection, but then I would remove myself from being able to offer that connection and that it was such a bad loop. It was just, I I would hurt so much and I would want Nick, but I would move away from Nick. And I know from things said, and I don't want to speak for him, that it was that he also sort of experienced this incredible loneliness while being with another person. Mm -hmm. And we were just for so long, intentionally or no, just completely sideswiped each other and missing each other and like missing the target entirely. And I think within that loneliness, too, I think one of the things that happened to me was I started to reinforce my own perceptions and interpretation of events, and I would fill in Nick's narrative for him in my brain. And uh, a lot of when I can look at the the end, the last couple-year run, and I can look at what I value as being distinctly different now is that when I choose to go like the person omniscient with Nick's interior life, I can say that totally may be a thing. And there could, there are a billion other variations. The, the, the likelihood that I've gotten it specifically right is so tiny. Our, we have a, our couple therapist said, you know, it's this absurd thing about relationships, any sort of relationship that you need to be on the same page. She's like, mm-hmm. the likelihood that anyone's going to wind up on the same page as someone else in a world of so many books, yeah. is it's so low. And so she's like, we're lucky if we're on the same shelf and we can hope we're in the same bookstore or library. Yeah. But trying to get on the same page we're all going to just keep failing each other if that's what we insist on. Yeah. And I think uh, it's, that reminds me of Brene Brown, Dr. Brene Brown, which is uh, she always says her recommendation is to say to your partner or whoever your best friend, the story I'm telling myself is, and that's the, you know, and that's the way you say, this is what I think you're thinking right now. And it's by labeling it a story that you're, the narrative that you've created. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking too, as as you're saying those things, Brian, that in that difficulty that we were having for a while, connecting and filling in those blanks and and kind of being mysterious to each other. Because I spent a lot of time wondering what Brian was doing and thinking, and I I obsessively like thought was always thinking about is he sneaking alcohol like is he going out of the house for a little bit is he going to get is he going somewhere to drink is if he goes out of the room for a little bit has he gone to like you know yeah something without me knowing it and I think a lot of that too was exacerbated and made very difficult and I think in some ways I blamed myself because 
it kind of timed up to um, when I went back to school and I was working full time and I was in school. So like we were physically apart a lot. Mm. We, I would have 12, 16 hour days sometimes where I was away. Um, and it felt like that was the time period in which things got worse. And there were other things happening too. Like we, we moved and we moved into a very bad living situation mm. when all that was happening. But I went through a lot later. I was like, oh, it's because I went back to school. Because uh, I went back to yeah. school. And that, that, you know, whatever, whatever happened, whatever, like, made Brian want to, like, you know, go back to drinking that way again. It was because I was in school. And I, I don't think that I think that way anymore. Or I think that, like, there were a lot of complicated factors and it's not because I went back to school, but for a while I was like working through that blaming myself. Yeah. And what would you, Brian, would you stop for a while or pretend to stop? Would you try and say you I were would trying? I would stop for a while. I would stop. I was not good until the end about being false about my youth. I did not, it's a thing I don't love is like bald-faced dishonesty. I think that we all can cope in some ways with evading or choosing not to mention, but I would try my hardest just to make it so that Nick wouldn't have to ask me a direct question about it. And, And, you know, there's a few times, and I think this has also helped some ways in reestablishing and helping to further trust after after I started to pursue sobriety is that Nick would look me in the face and ask me. And if I had lied, he knows, and not he knows, but I would inevitably fall a few minutes later and have to come back in and be like, no, I totally lied. I'm totally drunk right now. I could not cope with that dishonesty living in the space and I would choose whatever the awful cost would be of admitting inebriation over letting that dishonesty sit. And so I, but I think that because that was a thing that in many ways I valued, I think that over the past couple of years, it has helped again, like in some ways establish trust. Like I don't want to speak for Nick, but the couple of times that he's, been concerned because I was, you know, out doing right. something later than I had intended to be to, or, you know, or he saw something in the house that was suspicious. He would ask me, I would give him my honest answer. And then when I didn't then later correct it, I yeah. think it allowed for space to be like, oh, well, that must have been the truth. Yeah. And I think for me, it was only like, a couple of instances after he got sober where like you had been out somewhere and I was like, Oh no, it's starting again. And, you know, I had to ask and you said, no, I haven't been drinking. And I didn't, you know, it was a part of me that didn't believe it at first. I think there was only like one real night of that when afterwards I was like, okay, I think, I think I do feel like if he is going to drink, He's not going to hide it. Mm. I think it took one conversation of really believing that there was deception happening for me to kind of like get it in my body that 
if anything else, deception is not going to be a part of how this goes. And did you, when all this kind of back and forth was happening, Nick, did you sometimes like not ask on purpose? Oh yeah. There were times where I definitely avoided asking because I didn't want to know. I was, I wouldn't, I, there were cases where I strongly suspected and I would avoid the subject and, or like I would find evidence, evidence, either like liquor bottles or things like that. And I would just pretend I hadn't seen because I, I think there was a part of me too in those instances when I just let it go that I was just kind of, kind of tired in advance of the idea of arguing about it. And I think that's fair. I mean, I think it's inhumane to, you know, I think you deserve a break too from that. You know, I think it's one thing to never address it, but there are times when it's, it's just, it's huge to have to deal with, you know, to have to like make that decision to confront the person and have that conversation. So I can see how, you know, it makes sense to give yourself a break every once in a while, but. Yeah. And I think I would, I think I would go in um, phases. Yeah. I think there was a, there was a distinct phase where I was, I was avoiding the argument. Mm -hmm. And then there was a, another distinct phase that I think took us right up until when Brian got sober, where I was never avoiding the argument. And I was like, I was bringing it up every time. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Brian's like, I remember. <laughs> Did you, were you in therapy? Were either of you in therapy at this point? I think we both were. I was. I, oh, yeah. I've been in therapy yeah. for a long time. Uh, Brian, were you now, discussing your use in an honest way with your therapist? In therapy? Yeah. I did after a while with one of mine. So because I've listened to the podcast prior, I went on what's the one that's supposed to make you not enjoy alcoholic oh. not to come as a shot, and it's specifically more for opiates. Right, um, and I always confuse it, and I always say it's the other thing. Yeah, there's naltrexone and naloxone. Naltrexone so is the familiar. one. Yeah. Yeah. I was I got very open with a psychiatrist with a medication manager, and I said, oh, I want you to give me this. I had heard about it on NPR. Right. Naltrexone, you know, and he's like, oh, great. This solves all the things. And uh, and I went on it and it totally like works like gangbusters until you're a person like I am and also then went on like benzos. And what nobody tells you is that it's not a comfortable or enjoyable situation, mm. but you can certainly drink through that. Certainly mm-hmm. if you're on the pill, it's not, I would not recommend it to anybody. And it takes quite a lot to get anywhere near where you think you want to go. And the cost the next day is horrendous. And the cost of all doing it too. I mean, it would cause me to get very, very ill and I would just like move past that. But you were just I searching that less, feeling. Yeah, and I would I was less upfront with my therapist first and I was more upfront with my medication manager and then I got very upfront with my therapist about it. And it became I mean it was and the way I entered that conversation was Nick has a problem with my drinking and he my therapist would say, "Okay, and do you have a problem with your drinking?" Right. Or he would say things like, "Well, that is a situation that 
maybe we all should strive not to find ourselves in the one where we're fighting or the one where, I mean, there's a specific thing that we even talked about in our couple therapy once was I got totally wasted and Nick totally called me on it. And I totally left the house and went and stayed at the hotel room because I just didn't want to be in trouble. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that, my that, therapist yeah, after yeah. that fact, after that time and our couple therapist too was like, that's not kind of within the realm of like necessarily healthful behavior. <laughs> um, I mean, that, so, that particular, yeah. that particular night was what led me to finally talk to my therapist about what had been happening because I was previously specifically not talking to my therapist yeah. about any of this. Cause I, I knew if I talked to him about it, he would say like, this is not, a good situation. Yeah. And I didn't want to hear those words, Right, but I finally did. And it was, it was after that incident at the movies that I talked to my therapist. He referred us to our couples counselor it was after okay. all that. It was like in the immediate aftermath of that. So what do you think? I'm just, you know, you two don't have children together. You're not married. What what do you think? You were young. What what? Why did you stay together through all of this? I think for me, <laughs> I'm only laughing for those in Radio Land. I'm only laughing because Nick and Brian were having a Zoom sort of face off. off. I think for me, for a very long time. And this is a dynamic that I've dealt with in my therapy and my Al-Anon is that during the, during the drinking years, say, I don't think there was much that Brian could have said or done that would have caused me to leave. Mm. I think I was, I think I wore it like martyrdom to a certain extent, like we were saying, yeah. or I don't know. I had, I had my own, I came into the relationship with some of my own self-esteem issues, let's say, that caused me to just see any of the arguments about drinking or things that would come up as just, like, I didn't, I, like, I didn't really, shouldn't deserve or expect any better than that. Right, right, right. And when I find, I finally started attending Al-Anon meetings, what, three months before Brian got sober? So there was three months of me going to Al-Anon while Brian was still actively drinking. And but Brian was actively going to start up that And I think I had a lot I had a I had like a holy crap moment when I was going to those Al Anon meetings of you know, there's certain behavior here that I should not be just tolerating for either of our sakes, you know, for me and for the the way it enables Brian. I've been doing such a disservice to both of us by just shrugging and saying like, oh, well. And I finally did get to a moment where I was considering leaving, and Brian knows this. And I I finally did say to Brian, like, I, if something doesn't change, I'm, I'm looking at sublets. I'm looking at what would go into moving out. And shortly after that, he did get sober. And I... I do think that if, if things hadn't changed, I would have 
I don't know that I would have ended ended the relationship, but that I would have taken some time apart. Yeah, say. yeah. And but that's not the way it happened. Brian made a change in his life, and he did a lot of hard work to get sober. And of course, at that point for me, it, it was like, well, this thing that has been such an obstacle and such a hardship for both of us is finally looking up Mm -hmm. what would that version of a relationship be like Mm -hmm. yes we'll find out and we have been finding out Mm -hmm. brian do you have anything to add or your own experience from that i would add interestingly to that story about like or just for those who are keeping track at home it's very interesting for me to hear nick talk about that sort of like last desperate moment and the ultimatums that he gave or the scenarios that he presented me with about choice uh, or about what costs would come with continuing my behavior solely because none of those are the reasons that I did it. I don't actually, when Nick tells that story, I was like, oh, I have the vaguest recollection of those being on the table. But, you know, I'm, I'm deeply proud of the fact that I did not do this for anyone else. Mm-hmm. And I think that the I think that with Nick, one of the things that, you know, keeps me around, keeps me coming back, is incredibly valuable to me about our relationship is that it is like uniquely remarkable to be in a relationship with somebody who wants something better from you, but wants it in a different way from how you want to be better yourself. I think that that's the thing. Like I always want Nick to, in various things that I do, I always think like, oh, Nick is going to fawn over this or approve of this. And um, and without fail, those are not the things that he makes me feel good about or wants me to improve on. I think that's sort of where it is. Like I, I think, oh, here are all the ways I'll be a better version of myself. Mm-hmm. And the ways that Nick wants me to be better or or helps me be better are not any of those ways that I sort of frame in myself. I just, he makes me look at the world in a different way, sort of constantly. Mm-hmm. And I hope I do the same to him. And I don't, and one thing I think anybody who's going through a shift in a relationship that's this tectonic, I, I constantly ask myself and notice when things surprise me Mm. and when we surprise each other and when we have like really silly fun. Like I always notice those in the moment. I think that one of the things that keeps, well, and I think another thing that very much keeps us together is that we come from, we both are anchored in the creative arts, specifically the performing arts, but or And I would say one of the things that I think has really helped both of us, or at least I'm speaking for myself in terms of this, is that I, I think that because the performing arts are inherently about telling stories, we also understand that we each have a right to our own story. Mm. And if we want to, if we want to be afforded that right, we have to afford that right the other person. I mean, I think that was one of the very interesting things about Nick coming to me and telling me that he'd written this play that was kind of about what we had gone through was I, there was this part of me that just wanted to be the high-minded artist right. and say, well, of course you have, you have as much right to all those stories as I do. Right. And, and 
I didn't believe that in my heart, but I said it and I stuck to it and I figured out a way to come up to that. And there was like a good, um, not good, but I think there's like an instructive object lesson in recommendation for all those listening. There's a book called Portrait of the Addict as a Young Man by Bill mm-hmm. Clegg. And he tells the story of this run of uh, addiction that he was in and the toll it took on a relationship he had. And he was in a relationship with a filmmaker. And a couple of years after Portrait of the Addict as a Young Man came out, a film by his partner at the time called Keep the Lights On came out. And they document the exact same moments in time. And it is remarkable if you experience them in tandem because you see that they both have 100% right to own the stories of the, in which they participated. And so I think it's one of the things that we work at, but I think also like Nick keeps telling me stories that, um, that interest me. And, and I am very curious about our story. I think, and I think a helpful thing too, is just to always remain curious. Mm-hmm. I, yeah. You know, he still yeah. surprises me and I still, and it's again, like not telling yourself the stories of what somebody else is thinking is that I, I don't know. Like, I think if I were able to accurately predict a hundred percent of what Nick was thinking or feeling, I, that's when I would get out. Right. 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 But it's the fact that like I get consistently surprised or things come out of left field that's wonderful, but in the in the moments where trust and expectation and you know sort of a faith in the 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 road and the integrity of the relationship in those places, right? Like Nick, Nick and I, I don't think surprise each other. I think those things need to be. Uh, I think you have to have faith in a certain mm-hmm. quality of an ongoing relationship. So that's rambling. Yeah. <laughs> It's inspiring for a single person to hear. So what was the moment that led? So you were going, Brian, you were going to AA. Nick was going to Al-Anon. Nick, did you just know about the existence of Al-Anon, like just as a citizen of the world or? No, my, I mean, I think I knew a little bit. I, I mean, I knew about its existence. Yeah. But my, my therapist, had been suggesting it for a while. And then he said, I am ordering you (laughs) demanding that you try at least one meeting. Okay. Like you don't have to keep going, but like, he's like, I'm assigning you like as homework to go to a meeting. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Right. And what did you think of it? I was really terrified at first. It was a round Robin format. And I was like, I could see it coming to me. I was like, oh, no. And I I think all I I introduced myself and said, I'm nervous and don't want to talk, pass. Um, But the thing is, it was very, everybody, and it's a very, it's a meeting I still go to and I still go to virtually and it's a meeting I've chaired Mm. in the past. Mm -hmm. Um, I think there must have been 30 to 40 people in that room. Wow, that's a the first time I went. A big meeting. It's a big meeting. It's a big meeting. But every people approached me. People introduced themselves. Right. People were like, You're, "We're really happy to have you here." People offered me their phone numbers, right? Who like I hadn't had full conversations with, and 
I'm, I'm pretty shy and I'm pretty like socially anxious. Mm. Um, and it could have had the opposite effect, but I was actually very drawn in by that. Mm -hmm. I think, I think in part two, because that was an emotionally rough period. And I Mm -hmm. think people being friendly and warm to me felt so nice. Yeah, that relief. It did make yeah. me want to go back. Yeah. And Brian, when did you decide to try AA? What was that tipping point? Mm, I think, in all honesty, I think Nick's therapist also assigned it to me, uh, or assigned <laughs> AA to me. Wait, Nick, how, does, I, how does that happen? Does Nick's therapist say to Nick, tell Brian? <laughs> I'm not sure. I remember, Nick, that we were walking in Bushwick, having gotten bagels, my parents were visiting, and one of us said that I should try meetings. And I remember you saying, oh, my therapist thinks that that would be a good idea okay. or something. I, if I recall, I think my therapist mainly suggested it for me, but I think I was just like, hey, I'm trying a meeting. Okay. Why, don't, why don't we both try meetings? Right. I'll mm-hmm. try one and you'll try one. Right. Right. Did you think that Brian would actually listen to you or did you, was that kind of a Hail Mary? From what I recall, it, it seemed like the sort of thing that could go either way. It was like a 50-50 shot, whether right. how it would be received. Right. So, Brian, you were in AA for three months, drinking throughout, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I'm trying to decide whether to get into that or not. <laughs> What what was the thing that helped you stop, or what was the what was the catalyst for the real the real deal, real change? Um, I think if I think about it, uh, or the way I've been thinking about it, sort of in the past couple of minutes, is as much as AA was in, or twelve step wasn't the community that I found myself in long term. Mm-hmm. I think that what it did what um going to those rooms did was i primarily considered that i it let me see the the multiple variations of myself mm-hmm. i i mean i think that you know i would go into those 12 step rooms and there would be people who seemed really really happy and then there were people who you know you know, had these awful stories about something that had happened just a couple of hours before. And I think it was the first time that I started to see that, that I could be on either side of this kind of neutral territory. Mm. I think that I like straddled neutral territory for a long time, which was like, well, I happen to be a person who has a problem, but I, you know, I very much was one of those people who didn't want to go in and have to declare that I'm an alcoholic. Like I didn't want that. Yeah. It seems very, and, and a lot of recovery memoirs talk about like how irrevocable that statement feels. Yeah. And I mean, I, I was like something, I don't know. I mean, I'm not sure exactly what it was, but like definitely, you know, I didn't do 90 and 90, but right. I did a lot. And I read that book over and over again. And I don't think until now I would have credited that like being in those rooms is what helped me make that move. You're gaining information, even if it's like causing, yeah. And I'd often like, and Nick knows this and memoir, I'm very partial to memoir. And like, I had read all of the books on 
sobriety. You know, I've read, I had by that point read so many, you know, Bill Clegg and all that stuff. I'd been through like my experience of, of his book and the film, but that was all, you know, when I was, you know, I wouldn't say it was in heavy use, but like it was still active use. And yeah. I think that, you know, one of the things that gets really tricky about the recovery memoir is that it, it inevitably has to be told from a position of distance and accomplishment. And it tends to document the disaster right before and the early part of recovery mm-hmm. and then skips to, and now I'm a person who has a happy life and I did this thing. And I think that being in the room, being in 12 step to that information there allowed me to understand that or allowed me to finally consider the fact that there wasn't an over here and an over there, mm. like there wasn't actively in use and completely sober. Fixed. There was like a way to get from point A to point B and that neither were full stops. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, but I'm not, I mean, Nick may have more memory of this than I do solely because I was not sober, but I mean, I, I'm not sure what made me make the call to the uh, facility that I, you know, I guess it's not a facility. Like I did a nationally recognized um, intensive outpatient mm-hmm. program. And I found all of that through resources uh, from my employer. Um, but I'm not, I don't think I could probably ever accurately recall what it was that made me pick up that phone and get that information. But it, definitely follows having walked into AA rooms mm-hmm. nearly once a day for three months. Mm-hmm. And so, so you went to the in, uh, intensive outpatient, the IOP, and then what was that? So what was the time frame between that and you, Nick, going to your silent Buddhist writing retreat? Five months, five months. Okay. Brian, tell me what you, you told me about this, but I'd like you to kind of relay it. Like what, when you heard about that, that Nick had written this thing and you kind of, you, you mentioned it earlier about how like allowing him to own his own story in this, but how you kind of confronted reading it or. So Nick came back from his writing retreat and was unpacking and he kind of was not being talkative and it was not being forthcoming. And he, and he hadn't been in the house longer than an hour, I would think. And he said, I have to tell you something. And I, the bottom fell out for me and I was convinced he was going to tell me one of two things, which was either he had on the retreat met someone and my role as uh, a supporting character in his life drama was, over my contract had not been renewed or he was just going to tell me that he'd come to this realization because there was a I had a fear I think yeah which is very I think decently founded that we were okay in my recovery if we were still together if we could check in every day that mm. that but if he got too far away I yeah. think I was very afraid that he would look back on all of it and say no I'm cashing the chips and I'm walking yeah um and he looked me in the face and he was like, I wrote a play about 
us, but it's not about us. Like there was a lot of, he conditioned a lot of it, you know, like I want you to know that it's not exactly about us, that it's inspired by us, but there's also these big differences. And, um, and then he was like, I don't remember when you offered me the script, but, uh, you said you had the script. Um, but I remember in that moment being like, absolutely. I mean, you're an artist, I'm an artist. We are both storytellers. You get to tell your story. And then I went like immediately into therapy that week and was like, this motherfucker, pardon my friend, <laughs> like, wrote a play. Like he wrote a play about our shit and I can't believe he got to the story first. <laughs> and, you know, and then I went to my, I remember going to my medication manager and he was like, did you read it? And I was like, no, of course I haven't read it. But <laughs> Uh, and Nick, Nick gave me the script. Did you give me the script? Yeah. Or did you just say it was available? Um, I think, I think what I said was, do you want to read it? And you said, no. So I don't think I ever got as far as sending it to you. I think I offered to either email you the document or give you a hard copy. And I think you said you didn't want to. Well, and I think that that was like, I can look at that and definitely see that as like, a very important part of like my journey to like of discovery and recovery was the ability to say no. Yes. Cause I think a previous version of me would have said, absolutely. And I will take this and this is part of the thing. Right. And, and I left it and it wasn't until it started to have a potential for a performative life that I, that I read it. And that was like a year. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, I remember saying to you that if I'm going to be, working on this with actors, with the director, possibly showing it to an audience, I want you to read it first. Yeah. I basically didn't want other people to experience it before Brian did. Yeah. And I remember even saying to Brian, like, if you want this to be a play that I never share with anybody and just stays something that I wrote and just stays private, I'm willing to do that. Mm-hmm. And I remember at the time, Brian, you said, no, I want you to share it. I want you to be able to like share it with the world. And I said, I remember saying, I don't want to share it with the world until you have read it. And it was like, I, I feel like there was a really brief like standoff about that. Not maybe standoff is too strong of a word. Um, impasse. I think there was an impasse. impasse. There was an impasse. Yeah. Where I, Brian wanted me to just go ahead and like, send it to a director, plan performances without him ever having read it. And I said, I absolutely do not want to do that. Right. I set some parameters for how I would experience it. So I asked Nick to print it out. I had him bring it to me. I set aside time that he knew that I would be in another room reading it and that I would be reading it. We set aside time in case we needed to afterward to discuss it, but with full permission between the two of us that neither of us had to engage in the conversation then if we didn't want to. Mm. And I think the distance of it, I think Nick, since you've read it, I mean, I think that I spent a year plus with that script in the back of my mind as an inevitable cost I would have to pay. Yeah. Wow. And an, an inevitable Almost like I figured it would feel like punishment. And the great pleasure of it is that it's so well written and it has such heart and it has clever turns and the construct is really 
um, interesting that I found myself as a reader wanting to continue. I found myself as a person who had inspired some of that. I was able to have compassion for that and keep that sort of separate from my experience of the work. I think that, you know, there's like a big thing that's always said in theater, which is like this idea that you leave things at the door and when you come into the rehearsal room you're 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 doing a very very particular thing and anything that sort of is defined by your outside life including relationships good or bad don't come into the room because that's not part of the purpose and so I do think that I was very lucky to have been able to go in and honor the space as a as a consumer and reader and creator of art And I was able to keep that in some ways separate while I read it from necessarily something that I might have experienced as um, accusatory or as hurtful. But I definitely like lived with it for a long time thinking that's what was inside of it. And that sooner or later I would read it and everything would fall apart. And I would finally get this horrendous version of the truth that I had created. Mm -hmm. And it turns out the truth itself is heartbreaking and is horrendous. And none of it in the way that I had thought, mm. or a lot of it in in a way different from how I had thought. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How did it sit with you? You're saying it was still horrendous and heartbreaking, but was it something that you could like hold, you know, as opposed to, I think there's different kinds of pain, you know, I think there's pain that almost mm, like you can respect it and keep it close to you. And then there's ones that so it feels still very shameful and it just has a different edge to it, you know? I don't know. I think that it was, I mean, because it specifically actually isn't about the person who's an active addiction, too, it was such a, and and if the capacity for hurt and, and pathos and change and learning that's exhibited in the character who has a um is in a relationship with somebody in active use like the fact that all of that came out of nick i think i was very able to i don't know i mean it really filled in for me the the picture that like and this is something i sort of said at the beginning that like that nick 100 percent had an experience in our relationship and i 100 percent had an experience and that it isn't zero sum and it wasn't that like when I was up, he had to be down or when I was present, he was absent. Like turns out we were both there the whole time. And, and so I think that was good. I will say that I spent a week afterward, uh, you know, just sort of, it would keep ricocheting through my body and not in a, and not in a bad way at all, but in that way that, I don't know that working out can sort of keep going through your body or mm. it was, I would just stop. I mean, I would like full stop. Sometimes I'd be going somewhere and I'd stop and it would sort of like insist that it, it was there. And um, I do know that like, this isn't common necessarily for uh, any couples, right. To have record, to have a, an artistic impression of their relationship sort of. Yeah that one communicates to the other in that way. But it's, I don't know, it's incredibly useful and incredibly moving and incredibly difficult and incredibly worth it. Hmm. Nick, do you have anything to add to that? I think just 
I guess I would just add, for me, on my end of having Brian read it, I think on top of all of the, like, how's it going to be, you know, how's the subject matter going to impact him? Like, there was definitely a whole, like, I was really not looking to be hurtful or vindictive or cast blame on Brian in the play, but I was, you know, there was a small fear that maybe something would be received that way because it was really not a hundred percent, not what I was trying to do. So I was like worried that maybe there was something that I hadn't expressed in the way that I meant to, but then on a very basic aside from all of the emotional layers level, because Brian and I both do theater and because he's a director, designer, actor who, whose work I respect, I would, there's a part of me that's just like, it's a play I wrote. I hope he likes it. I hope he likes it as a play, right. which was like a whole other level of it yeah. for me. Because <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I really always want Brian's, I very, I very much value Brian's opinion of my work, whether or not, you know, any of his personal experiences have made it into the play. Mm-hmm. So that layer was still there on top of all the other stuff. Right, right, right. And I think one of my, I think if I recall after Brian read it, I think my first question was something along the lines of like, how, how are you feeling after having read it? Like what, and once I kind of, he expressed to me that he was okay and emotionally dealing with it. All right. I think my second question was like, did you like it? <laughs> like, did you think it was good? Yeah, that's natural. Yeah, that's cool. Well, I can't wait to see it. When you see it, that will mean that, like, we've conquered COVID-19, so that will be, like, even better. Well, we can perform it outside, I suppose. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, Nick, that you, like, make a really valid point, too, about Nick didn't want, you know, as he said, like, he didn't want me to feel like he was accusing me of something or uh, taking revenge or anything like that, and I think that for a long time, I figured that, like, how wouldn't he be taking revenge? Like, Mm -hmm. why wouldn't he? And the thing is because I, as a human being, would want to exact revenge on myself for the way I behaved and would want to punish myself for the way I behaved. I very much had the assumption that other people would want to do that. And it's also, you know, I think a testament to the work that we've done and the space that, you know, we allow each other that by the time I was opening those pages, while I was scared of what was inside, I did not believe that the person who had written it was, had the capacity to want to intentionally hurt me. Mm. And that took a lot, but I, I was, you know, I think many of us, and I would say this is kind of universal, like, we can all hurt ourselves worse than anybody else can hurt us. And I definitely was looking to punish myself a lot. So I assumed that's what was coming for me. And I had to learn to put that aside that other people are not, and that I shouldn't do it either. But yeah, that, that feeling that you deserve it. Yeah. And I remember thinking that when you sat down to read it, like my first thought was like, oh gosh, Brian's going to be so relieved when he reads this and sees that like <laughs> I'm not punishing him. But then there was a second part of me that's like, maybe I haven't done a good job as a writer and maybe I 
haven't communicated the tone and the emotion and the message that I meant to. And maybe it will hurt him because I haven't done my job as a writer in the way that I meant to. I think on one level, I was like, I can't write Brian's side of this experience because I don't know that what that was like. I can only write right. my own emotional side of this experience. And also, just by the nature of the retreat I was on, we were asked to really deeply examine ourselves. Yeah. And I think that was the healthiest and most constructive way to write about that time mm-hmm. from my own emotions and feelings and struggles um, mm-hmm. rather than it to be about like what happened or how it happened mm-hmm. or, you know, somehow trying to make it about imagining what Brian's part of it was like, cause I can't do that. And that yeah. wouldn't be fair to either yeah. of us. Yeah. I'm curious just to kind of wrap it up what it's like to be kind of, again, with the caveat that Nick's not in recovery for substance abuse, but you are going to a 12 step meeting. Yeah. Just like to be a couple who are both in different kind of recovery worlds. And do you talk about your meetings? I know we're obviously all anonymous, but there's like a certain level of like conversation that naturally happens sometimes with certain people about their meetings or, you know, how much is it part of your, your life together? I I would say, obviously, as you said, we would always respect anonymity. Right, um, right. But even beyond that, I don't know that either of us spend a lot of time talking about what happens in our meetings. But I do think the fact that we're both in recovery programs really affects how we communicate. Uh-huh. And it's very positive in a lot of ways because we're very aware. We're very, right. we have a mm-hmm. lot of language to talk about our feelings. Uh-huh. But then we also have moments where we're like, we are analyzing this to death sometimes. <laughs> we're like, you know, like we had a little, we had a minor disagreement about like what to have for dinner today. And we spent four times as long, like unpacking that disagreement as we did actually having the disagreement. And sometimes we have to like laugh at ourselves about that. Yeah. Yeah. One way yeah. that we share with each other I don't, you know, it becomes, I think, sort of the way like kids are when they find new things to play with. Is that like, you know, every once in a while something will happen or something, you know, something will happen between us or something will happen in one of our respective groups. And we come sort of like, you share it like something happened at school. Right. Like we do that. And it's not in like a gossipy way at all, but it's like, oh my God, this person's at this thing. And now I can't like undo this thing. And what's lovely is that like it's a way, I think, and because there's a common language between the two of us, it also, like, I think is a way, you know, I feel invited into the next world. Uh-huh. And I feel like because I don't have to, like, explain, like, the rules of the game, it's yeah. really lovely to be able to yeah. have him come into mine. And I spent, you know, in the IOP program I was in and the OP, which I was in for an outpatient, I was in for, like, over a year there were so many other people who were coupled and their partner was doing absolutely nothing. Mm. And they would be like, I can't share with my partner because you can't get to the sort of emotional essence of the story without laying the setting and giving a framework and saying, Oh, well, part of it is this construct where you don't respond directly. And you have to And Nick and I, because of it, we can skip all of that and we have a shorthand. And that's really lovely in a way that it makes me feel like I'm not doing it alone. Yeah. And 
and really affords me the opportunity too, I think, to offer a lot of generosity to the way other people go through their experiences with recovery mm-hmm. because I see somebody who's doing the same kind of work with a with a, a similar purpose but with different details. And, I, you know, I live with that person and we talk about it very openly. So everybody is on some sort of spectrum of like just getting to a happier, healthier place, yeah. a more sustainable place. And um, because, you know, Nick will sometimes use language. And I'm like, how do you know that? <laughs> because it seems very much like I'm in one cloud and he's in another. Right. And then it turns out, you know, it turns out there's so much just so universal mm-hmm. about any person who's willing to just sort of actively take accountability for themselves and actively interrogate the way they interact with and move in the world. Yeah, because, I mean, that's one thing that we've noticed and talked about, that Al-Anon is meant to be a you know parallel program to AA, but right. even beyond AA with other programs, with other recovery programs, the, the principles and the language, even though Al-Anon is not about substance, is very similar and it's very harmonious. And it, it, I think it serves as a reminder for me that even though I did not struggle with a substance, I still had things I needed to recover yeah, from. Yeah. They were just ways of thinking and ways of looking at myself and ways of looking at relationships. Mm. But there's still work to be done, and maybe it's it sets apart the whole idea of struggling with substance from other forms of struggle. Mm-hmm. But they they don't have to be so different because no. you know the thing the things that I talk about in my meetings are are not so different in principle and in um and in the work than what Brian has worked on. Absolutely. Yep. And anyone who's interested in an Al-Anon meeting, you can go if you're in recovery yourself in 12-step, they call that. That means you're a double winner, right? Have you heard that expression? <laughs> no, no. You have, the meetings that I go to, I'd say like about half the rooms or half the Zooms these days are yeah. probably double winners. Yeah. yeah. So you can go if you're in recovery yourself from a substance or a behavior, you, you can still... Um, so, like, I, I still, I have to try it out myself. Um, I've been meeting, too. So, yeah. Well, thank you both for coming on. This has been a while in the making. And I, I was kind of being a perfectionist about it. I was, like, saving it because <laughs> I wanted it to go really well. And I think it did. So. I think so, too. And, of course, there was a part of me, too, that when the play was first postponed, yeah. I was like, well, we'll reschedule once the play is rescheduled because right. it'll get rescheduled for the summer, right? Like, right. we'll be doing theater again by the summer, but right. no, so I know. might as well just have a lovely conversation rather than wait until the play happens. Right. And maybe when the play happens, we can have, like, another – there's, like, another layer of this conversation we can fish yeah. out. Totally. Yeah. All right. Well, have a good night. Thank you for coming. Thank you. You too. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Okay. That's it for this week. Thank you to Nick and Brian. That was amazing. You can find Nick at his website, which is www.nickrobido.com. I'm going to spell that for you. N-I-C-K-R-O-B-I-D-E-A-U.com. 
So you can go there to keep an eye out for the eventual production of his play against the Flash, which I know I'll be first in line. You can check us out on our website, which is sober.company. You can put that right into your browser, sober.company. Uh, our social media is at Soberco Podcast, Twitter and Instagram. You can send us love letters there. Please check out the show notes for anything we referenced, uh, including uh, Brian and Nick's Meet Cute. Uh, and yeah, our music, Per Use, is by the talented John Tessier, courtesy of Said So Sound. And that is it for this week. Take care of yourselves. So... So, sorry, back to Brian, back of addiction. <laughs> <laughs>